Reinholds is a social media and creative marketing agency owner, husband, father, DJ, global citizen, keynote speaker, and is proud to bring you the Reinholds Show Podcast. Uh, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Reinholds Show Podcast, and today, oh man, we have an amazing guest. Um, this guy has, has been on my radar for a long time. Um, he's definitely known for his LinkedIn uh, prowess, so to speak. He's, uh, he does LinkedIn locals. He does TEDx talks. He's a speaker, a speaker coach, uh, very forward thinking. We, we were just talking about uh, raising kids gender neutral, so we can get into that a little bit. Um, Bobby Umar is my next guest. He's an inspirational speaker coach and one of the most prolific advocates of heart-based leadership in North America. Inc. Magazine named him one of the top 100 leadership speakers alongside such noteworthy giants such as Richard Branson, Brene Brown, John Maxwell, and Robin Sharma. Bobby is a five-time TEDx speaker and one of the top social media influencers in the world with over half a million followers. He's been named the second best business coach to follow on Twitter and the fourth best leadership influencer according to Cred. Bobby's an author of three books, including international number one bestseller. He's also a frequent Huffington Post contributor and the host of a weekly tweet chat called The Power of Connection. I'm not going to finish the bio because I want to talk to you, get to know you, and have everybody understand you. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Ryan. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So so what's really cool is uh, we tried to make the show happen a little while ago over Christmas time, which was kind of my bad. And Everybody I was booking stuff with was canceling or, you know, rescheduling. And yeah, yeah. even myself, I because I, I have this thing where I'm like, I don't want to let up, you know, just because it's December and the end of the year. I want to keep going. But sometimes people are just, you know, we just want to relax. So, yeah, but um, I also think that I have downtime. So I have lots of free time. But yeah, well, really busy, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm enjoying my time at this pool. Why would I want to go back and do a podcast? Sorry, uh, it's like, uh, yeah. I get busy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you actually sent me a message and you're like, you know, my wife and I are enjoying a, a date night. And we're going to be staying in the hotel. And I just thought to myself, dude, go, like, go hang out with your wife, man. Don't be messaging me right now. Like, yo, that's uh, yo, take no worries, man. No worries with, with, with my issue. Um, so you you did message and say, hey, man, I wanted to come on the show. There's several things we wanted to talk about. I want to open up the show, though, with saying LinkedIn. I think, it, again, it's it's a platform I've really only focused on maybe for the last I want to say three, four months. I've been on it forever, um, but LinkedIn for me, when I was on it, I felt really stuffy. It felt like it was a place I couldn't really show my personality, so to speak. And, you know, things were being said like, well, you know, that's that's for Facebook and not LinkedIn. And then all of a sudden I gave, um, I, th- I actually had Dr. Natalia on and she said, you know, Ryan, LinkedIn has really changed a lot in the last little while. And you're seeing a lot of different characters and personalities. You know, you should give it another shot. I will say... My God, in the last couple months, amazing. For you, somebody who's been on LinkedIn for a long time, can you shed some light on to kind of maybe some of the misconceptions or how LinkedIn's changed as of recently? Well, I think the main thing is that, yeah, I've been on LinkedIn since the very beginning. I was one of the first million users. And uh, um, two years ago, uh, that's when I started realizing there's a shift. Microsoft bought them out. And with that, brought in a whole bunch of new things to upgrade them. So they started to do, they started adding native video. They started adding, uh, editing your comments. Like all those common things we used to complain about mm-hmm. on LinkedIn that made it stuffy and not very engaging. Like LinkedIn was not very engaging. I would post links, no one would comment. I would go into groups, I'd share something, no one would comment. And there was just no engagement versus like Facebook. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, which had that engagement. And so uh, in two years, it's completely 
really shifted it into a pl- platform where people actually get into big discussions. They engage. They like. They comment even more than like stuff I might post on Facebook. Like you know, if I post a baby picture of my daughter and she looks beautiful and gorgeous, you know, you get a certain number of likes and comments. But on LinkedIn, you're getting when you talk about stories about networking or storytelling or personal branding, and you're getting the same amount of stuff just for that. And it's not even like there's no picture of my daughter. It's like that. That's amazing too because. <laughs> People really want to be on there and engage. So I think that's been a big shift. And I think part of the misconception is that, um, you know, LinkedIn was used as a means to learn about jobs and find jobs. But now it is turning to a place for learning and it's a place for demonstrating your thought leadership around your own brand and your own expertise. So people are now sharing more articles, more videos, more blog posts. They are commenting a way to demonstrate their expertise and, and share their, their, their knowledge. And I think that's a huge, huge uh, game changer for me because, and then one thing I'll tell you too is, is that about two years ago when I first started uh, getting to LinkedIn a little bit more, I would spend about my, so I'm a big social media guy, right? So where do I spend my social media time? 60% Facebook, 30% Twitter, mm. 10% everything else is what it used to be. Mm. Now it is, I would say 65% LinkedIn, 20% Facebook, 10% Instagram, and 10% Twitter. That's the approximately what I'm doing. And because, so the LinkedIn Facebook thing is completely shifted for engagement and conversation. So I think that's amazing. Now, Instagram, it's funny you're saying at 10%, but I do know as of recent, you've really been, you know, pushing out on Instagram. Instagram, see, I'm... Well, I'm that 10% rever- was originally uh, melded into a 10% of everything, so <laughs> it used to be 2%. So I basically quintupled my 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 time on Instagram, yeah. Like, like just for me, straight from... It's funny because Twitter, Twitter for me was kind of like a Hall of Fame where I really got a lot of traction earlier when the whole social media game kind of came. And yeah. then Twitter to me just... And I hate to say it because I was so known for Twitter, but it just hasn't grown in the last few years. And it it always stuck at that 300 to 350 you know million monthly active user. And if you ask 10 people on the street, do they use Twitter? You know, eight of them are probably like, um, heard of it, don't really know how to get it. For you, when it comes to really diversifying your time in terms of social media, how do you prevent or how do you mask or do you care about how many likes and comments you get, also known as vanity metrics, when you're throwing up posts. Because I think I want to use, I really want to, I really want to go deep with you today because I think when it comes to engagement, <laughs> engagement and you know the likes, the comments, the shares, the video views, a lot of people get really wrapped up in these, you know, vanity metrics, so to speak. How do you gauge when a post does well on LinkedIn? How do you gauge uh, when a post does not do well? Um, do you have a threshold? Do you have benchmarks that you kind of go by? Sure. Well, let me first start by saying that I'm going to be very honest by saying that uh, everybody cares about those metrics. Uh, the people who deny that they don't care, that's, that to me is BS. Um, <laughs> if, and that, that's one thing. For, because if I have a post that has 10,000 views versus the one that has 400 views, obviously one didn't do well and one's doing great. I mean, right away, I see people already posting, oh my gosh, my post got 200,000 views or a million views. Yeah, because you care. Secondly, science, scientifically, you know, you have that dopamine effect that gets you excited uh, when you know, get the, the click or the link or the buzz or the heart or whatever it is. So that's there. Now, that said, in terms of how I track, uh, a big thing that I look at is um, the depth of the comments in terms of what they say. So um, some people start to really get engaging, sharing really vulnerable stories about themselves. So like I did one. I did a, po- a video post just about where I said, it is never okay to comment negatively on someone's appearance. I don't care what the reason is. Unless they mm. ask you for feedback, stop 
doing that. And mm-hmm. people, and there were some trolls too, but there were people like really engaging and sharing their stories. And so I think the length of the comment that they really get into, I think that is a really, really big thing. Uh, that that I I track, and the other thing is is the speed in which they happen, the, the speed in which the likes and comments will happen. Sometimes you'll get you know uh, twenty likes in an hour, and other times you'll get a hundred. Like oh, a hundred, like that's a lot. Like okay, <laughs> this is <laughs> clearly <laughs> trending. So I mean, you can use. And then the third thing I use is average views. So I've been tracking my average views since the beginning, uh, and so you know I get between average of three thousand to five thousand views on posts, and so. If something goes beyond that, now, okay, that that sounds like a significant one. That's twenty thousand. Okay, that's very significant. That's good to know. And if something's less, okay, you know, maybe this one didn't resonate. Maybe there's timing and uh, whatnot. But um, yeah, so that that's kind of how I look at uh, what what's trending, what's tracking. Now, being a LinkedIn OG, since we can call you that because you're an original uh, LinkedIn <laughs> uh, fam hashtag LinkedIn fam member, um, do you feel that? Somebody that is now coming, I mean, I can even use myself, somebody who's relatively newer at actually, you know, engaging in, and, and posting on a continuous, you know, consistent basis, which again, you know, maybe three, three, four months tops. Do you think there's still room on LinkedIn for people to come in and really show and get traction? Or do you feel like it's gotten, you know, to a place where it's maybe noisy? And if you do come in, you need to come in with something very different or authentic or maybe, hey, man, just get on and get started. No, uh, you know. First off, it's hardly even scratched the surface. So one of the things to keep in mind is that if you look at the, uh, you know, one percent, one percent of active users are creating content. Mm. That, that's a, that's nothing. Yeah. And then on top of that, one percent of that one percent are doing video content, which is nothing. Now mm. you could say, well, that's if you took one percent of one percent of you know the the five hundred million, that's like. What is that? I don't know. Is that fifty thousand people or five thousand people? <laughs> I'm not sure. Like that. Yeah, something like but that. But anyways, let's let's say it's five thousand. I feel like I should do it. Fifty-five, five hundred. <laughs> yeah. So it's five thousand. So it's only five thousand people are doing video content out of five hundred million, right? That's a huge opportunity to take advantage of. And the and the other thing is, you know, Facebook was also the was a game changer and player five years ago, but now it's more pay to play, and so they've lowered the algorithms. LinkedIn is promoting algorithms. We're getting far more reach than honestly that we deserve. So we should take advantage of it and build our profiles before uh, I predict in two to five years that LinkedIn will create Absolutely. a more pay to play model. So take advantage of it now. Twitter had its run. It's now not doing that anymore. So like, for example, my Twitter growth would grow, grow, grow. And then it stagnated because mm-hmm. they weren't I wasn't getting it. Same with Facebook. So to me, LinkedIn is the place to be for that. And Instagram yeah. is also a good place, too. Now, given your, well, I love Instagram, given your, um, I call it the Linkstagram effect where you're on LinkedIn and Instagram, it could be very powerful if you kind of couple the two. Now, given the fact that, so you you speak a lot, um, you put a lot of content out there about, um, you know, bullying and, you know, very, you know, touchy subjects and touchy in a good way, uh, very vulnerable. Um, What about your background has really, you know, trajected you into kind of who you are now and you know you're definitely using your audience and your voice to really you know shed light on um you know subjects like bullying subjects like online bullying trolling um for me i hold it dear to my heart i wasn't bullied in school um but i speak at a lot of schools about resiliency and i speak about you know um how it's not cool to to send direct messages to people and and you know shun them for their sexual orientation their race their background whatever it may be and that you know our words online do matter and people literally you do have kids killing themselves like committing suicide because of these actions i love the fact that you've taken a really good social stance and said well i'm going to use my audience to really shed light 
Uh, how much of that for you is, you know, because of personal and then how much of that is just you as a, a you know, kind of quote unquote expert uh, just saying, hey, guys, like we need to be more cognizant. We need to use our platforms for more education and more dialogue. So I would say there's three things that come to mind when I think about that. The first one was I was bullied as a child and there was a bully on my street that would, you know, get in my face and do a lot of stuff to me. And yeah. that was something I dealt with. Uh, the second thing is um, uh, I'm really big on diversity. So, um, you know, I, I have a mixed marriage. I have mixed kids uh, traversing that whole diverse lifestyle. Um, because I'm a big, because diversity is a big part of my values, I'm really big on seeing what, understanding what women are going through, what people of color are going through, what people of uh, LGBTQ are going through, and these people are all dealing with bullying of, of some sort. They go through a lot of people who push push them down and, and put them down all the time. So uh, that is very very important to me in terms of equality. And the third thing is uh, honestly my experience on Twitter in the beginning when I when I got on there and started building, I just saw a lot of hate and, and bullying develop there. And at a certain point, I was like, you know what? Enough is enough. We need to. This is happening all the time, and all this divisiveness is creating more divide. So what we need to do is bridge understanding and fight these trolls and do it in a way that you know, like Gandhi would do, like in a way that's very, you know, um, respectful, polite and what, and, and other people want to be angry and, and yell at them and whatever. But for me, like my, my pin tweet is all about, you know, we can disagree with someone without putting them down. We can engage in bridge understanding. We can, um, call out something, call out action behaviors or personal attacks and, and that type of stuff. And I think that by doing that, that also led to my whole philosophy that, you know, bullying is something that is everywhere and rampant. And, mm. and now that, and now that even LinkedIn has more engagement, you know, I'm seeing bullying there. And so I think we need to call it out, including the video I did about stop telling people that they look terrible or comment on their hair or their looks. Don't do that. <laughs> it's so true though. There's some things that you're just like, just don't, just don't, don't. Yeah. If somebody asks you privately, sure. You know, give me your opinion, but just don't, don't do that. Um, bullying. It, it's, it's, it's really, it's so weird. You know, I love, I love podcasting, Bobby. For Sorry, I should drop with something. Sorry, Sorry, one thing I should mention. Sure. So my son, my son was bullied. And that also is another thing that, that's the fourth thing that gets to me. Because he was in grade two and he was bullied. But the part that really got to me, we didn't know for months. Because he was too ashamed or whatever to tell us. And I was like, wow, I thought my son and I talked about everything. And yet here it is. And he, he wouldn't tell us. And wow. And we dealt with it. But you know, I don't know what kind of effect that has on them, and I feel helpless as a parent. And so I know there's tons of parents and tons of kids out there that are dealing with this stuff. And so, yeah, for me, that that's a, another thing that just came to my mind. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Interject at all. This is, uh, and everybody that listens to the show, you know how we roll. You know, we don't do pre-scripted questions. Bobby can attest to that. I did yeah. not send him a calendar invite. He can attest to that. Uh, it's real talk, very freestyle uh, flow. As a new parent, two years, over two years in with my wife, um, thank you so much. And our baby's United Nations. We, I'm Jamaican and German. My wife is Arabic, Arabic, Egyptian, Spanish. I mean, wow. we have such a mix. So we're very culturally diverse when it comes to that. Uh, it is an absolute fear uh, of mine um, when, you know, I see him walking with his backpack and our future daughter walking with their backpack into into what I what we're almost calling the abyss of what you don't control and um there's teachers there's principals there's fellow students there's all those homes that you don't know what's going on in there that all kind of come into the school and it's you know i wouldn't say we're control freaks but of course we try to make sure that 
we're controlling and having the best possible outcome. But that being said, which I, I'm sure you can attest to as a parent, there's lots you simply just can't control when they leave your home. Um, how did that make you feel um, as a parent, just literally figuring out, hey, my son is being bullied and I do have a great relationship and I am preaching great communication. And even my own child was feeling in a way that they didn't want to talk about it. Like, I mean, how did you actually feel like just inside and how did you kind of work through that to get to a place where you're like, well, uh, you know, I'm dad and mom's mom and we, we need to solve this. So like, how did that feel? Well, it felt awful. I felt helpless. I felt uh, sad and tragic. And my heart was just gut-wrenchingly feeling awful for what he was going through and how he felt. Because he's also very, he's a very reserved, introspective person versus my daughter who's like, ah, right? And so uh, there's a difference, right? And so I don't know what he's feeling and thinking. And so, and so uh, one of the things I want to do is just have a talk to him about it and understand how he's feeling and try to create an environment where he felt safe to, to talk about it in a way that didn't shame him, didn't, uh, you know, seem it was just a normal conversation about about bullying and, and touch and personal space and bodies and all those kind of the dynamics that we have. Uh, yeah, it was really, really difficult. And I think the other thing for me is I've learned over the years that um, I, I can't control everything. So, you, so one of the things I do is I've changed, shifted my focus in terms of, you know, the parenting, which is, uh, I'm, I'm focused on trying to give them the, the guidance, support, and the tools to help them integrate into society because they're going to deal with screen time. They're going to deal with bullying. They're going to deal with bad teachers and good teachers. They're going to deal with good friends and bad friends. So for me, uh, one, having open communication, two, look, giving them tools and things to, to figure that out. Because I remember one time with my daughter, she was talking about so she was in like I think grade one at the time, and she uh, was having an issue with her with her with her kids. Uh, these friends who weren't going to go to her birthday party, and they wouldn't be her friends anymore. But she's thinking about, and I just said, you know, what, have you thought about trying this? And I gave her like a little uh, like a role playing thing to try. When they see this, say that, and when they say this, say that. Hey, well, it's too bad you can't come to my party because it's going to be awesome. But if you if you do want to come, you're totally invited. And the look on her face was like, I think that'll work. You know, like, <laughs> and, and, and all of a sudden I just empowered her to, you know, do something that, I, that a tool, give her a tool that she thought was actually going to work. And that was, that was an amazing feeling as a parent. So having those moments can be really good, but you take the time to do that, to help them integrate, to give them the support, to know that you're always going to be there for no matter what. Jumping into, and it's a beautiful answer, but jumping into this is something that I've really noticed being a dad. And I don't know, I wouldn't say it bugs me, but in some senses, maybe a bit. Throughout the whole birthing process, the dads are very like whatever. They're we're I feel like we were just there. Like even our gynecologists and the doctors, like it, you know, it, everything was about mom. And you know, I go into to uh, public washroom sometimes. There's not even any change tables for right. like as a as a guy as a dude. And you know, I'm like everything is catered towards mom. And it's interesting because I'm like. I'm a very, I'm like, my wife and I, we both agree, we co-parent. Like, my son feels just as good with mom as dad. And we don't put, like, our time spent with our kids is completely equal. For us, we don't we didn't do any child care, so we figured out our schedule. My wife has a business, I have a business. Yes, it's nuts, but, you know, we, like, I see the benefits in my son, and he just feels great. But do you, you being a guy... And we do see all these hashtags like Lady Boss Tribe and Girl Boss Tribe. And I just had a conversation with a fantastic person from LinkedIn uh, who's uh, who's great. And I said, you know, you're you're a female 
and you know you have the hashtag and you're really you know doing that and really kind of marching to these social um you know campaigns so to speak but just you know kind of getting a cohort together which i think is really good i was raised by a single mom so i'm i've always been very comfortable with women my perspective has always been very pro-woman i think women run the world i think sometimes we are guests and we're just kind of trying to do what we do um but what do you think about those kinds of social um what's the word social kind of campaign slash you know groups that really are focusing on empowering because to me i have two sides to it i i love it i think it's great but then at the same time i think sometimes it can be a little divisive because if i say you know can you imagine like can you imagine i said um hey i'm gonna come out in canada with like you know black only conferences or something like that like some people could feel a certain way about that like ryan you're trying to be a little divisive and i kind of i'm just stemming from the whole bullying and online kind of bullying chat because I feel like our world is going to a place that is amazing in, te- in the sense of everybody's starting to finally talk about all these issues that were always here, that have always been there. And to me, I always feel like the first step in any solution is always communication. What do you think about all the social campaigns? Do you love that all these social media platforms have given people a voice? Uh, how do you feel as a dad um, and all that stuff? Okay, that's a lot there, a lot, lot to decompress. <laughs> so I think first off, um uh, I'm a big believer in diversity and equality, and I think that any person who's been marginalized or had challenges, whether, whether it's whether it's women, whether it's black people, whether it's LGBTQ, whatever, we need to give them space. That's number one. So if they mm-hmm. want the space and they want to create their tribe, and they want to create their their hashtags, uh, I'm all for it. So I think that they can totally do that. At the same time, I think it's also important for us to have conversations because one of the things I've learned from my dad, which is, you know, if you want to, if you want to get equality for yourself because of your color or your religion or, mm-hmm. or gender, whatever it might be. Right. You need to have everyone else as a part of the conversation. The people who systematically oppress need to be part of the conversation. So women need to bring men as part of the conversation. People of color need to get non people of color as part of the conversation because you need to get allies. So you also have to find that balance between having that conversation with those people in that way. That said, you know, when it comes to the parenting thing, um, I'm also like you in the sense that uh, all my friends are women and I've always had a very high, you know, emotional intelligence or EQ and and my best my, I had a best woman at a wedding and things like that. So for me, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's been a, it's been a big thing. So I'm, I'm very aware of being a feminist. I'm very aware of being an ally. I'm very aware of, you know, um, my privilege when it comes to being a man or my privilege to becoming a, a big, tall person. I'm a big I'm a big guy. So I understand that privilege much better now than I used to. And so when it came to the, the, the birth thing, you know, part of it was like, you know what? I need to just, you know, uh, STFU and let 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 the wife do the pregnancy thing and do her thing. At the same time, I can also advocate for myself. And my wife was a huge uh, ally to help me get opportunities to do stuff. So, you know, we did this whole we did this whole thing called hypnobirthing, which was great because I was really I was part of the whole process. And uh, my wife actually did the entire birthing thing without any without any meds or anything like that just completely natural and it was amazing and i, I was watching like wow you're so good like you're so <laughs> calm and you know because she was so calm because you look at the the, the videos yeah. and movies where like Ooh. they're screaming and yelling because that that's that's a whole persona but when you go to like countries like africa and you go to a village uh someone is about to have birth they, they you know they get this determined look on their face and focus and they go do it and there's no screaming or anything unless there's complications but of course natural birth no problem but here we've created this thing where let's just do Let's just do, uh, you know, uh, I forget what's from the name, forgetting for like when they have that operation, when they remove the baby. Oh, C section? C section. Yeah, yeah. let's yep. just do a C section. Yep. Let's just book yep. the C section in advance and you know, yeah. let's 
how to do needles and all that kind of stuff. But if you actually understand your, your bodies were designed to do that. So we did this whole thing and I'm sitting there and I was working with the, the doctor and the, uh, the hypnobirthing thing and I was part of the process and I felt really good about it. Now I couldn't do as much because she's doing the work there, but I certainly felt I was doing as much as I could. So for me, yeah. I was glad to be able to have that. Um, so for me, I, I actually was lucky that I had a really, uh, as equal as experience as I could. You know, it's interesting. I, yeah, and I, and I, I do agree. It's, uh, I looked at my wife completely different after the birth. I mean, I was very involved. I, I did have a GoPro camera stationed on the corner. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even joking. I do got everything on camera and, uh, you know, I just remember the look on her face and stuff. And it was just such an amazing moment. I think the moment is so big. Like you're just, you're thinking, but you're just more reacting and, and trying to really just take it all in. Cause you're like, I mean, as a first time parent, I'm like, oh my God, you know, you yeah. try to do as much research, but it, there's nothing like the real thing when it's happening. You, you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny when I did the, so I had a video t- a camera placed. I haven't looked at it 10 years <laughs> later. I, I've never looked at it. And then I remember another time before I became a dad with the first, with my first son, Niall, I took the camera and went away because she was like, she was like six centimeters dilated and I went away and I was like, and I did a video to talk to my newborn kid. And I said, oh. and, I, and I, I made this speech for like five minutes. I've never seen that speech. I should really find that thing. Like, I, I, I want to know what I said. I think you need to wait because I think that is beautiful, man. I think that yeah. that's something. I mean, I just think about it. Well, you could you could play that two ways. You could one, wait a little while, go listen to it or B two, go find it. Um, never listen to it. And when you're gone on to the promised land, can you imagine just having your kids kind of view that because it's so unedited you know it's yeah. it's it, it came from the heart so it's kind of a I, I i would have to sit back and think about that because i'd be like do i want to hear it or is the magic in it's just so unedited you know it's just so oh so no I, mean, you. I would, <laughs> would want to hear it but then i would want to show it to my son when he felt that he wanted to but i yeah i wouldn't want to do it when he's like 25 and now he's a drug dealer <laughs> and i feel disappointed here here's what i wanted for you my son <laughs> No, no, I'd, I'd rather catch him now before it's too late. And he goes, oh, my God, I appreciate you. That's supposed to. So Bobby's forecasting that his son's going to become a drug dealer. But uh, let's uh, let's oversight that. Oh, it's every parent's nightmare, right? You're worried of that you're, course. Yeah. Of course. Do you ever see anything in your kids, though, now that they're 8 and 10, that you're like, that's it. We need to switch that. Or, or are you kind of like, oh, my God, like they're becoming these really opinionated strong impactful individuals that in some senses i'm gonna have zero control over their 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 personalities or the way they are well yeah i mean i I definitely love their strong personalities and opinions but i also make very clear to them look it's okay to be angry it's okay to you know have these feelings but it's not okay to treat people in a very uh, negative way so Mm. mindful of your feelings but don't no hitting don't hurt don't attack people don't insult people things like that in the beginning, earlier on, uh, when the kids were younger, uh, we were working on my son's empathy because we felt it was a little bit lacking, and now it's, it's mm. better. It's not perfect, but it's definitely mm. a lot better. Uh, my daughter definitely has a lot more, um, you know, temper tantrums and things like that. Again, we're like, okay, it's okay to be angry, but you can't say things like this. You cannot behave this way. And so that's the type of stuff that I, I you know, want to, you know, work on. And the other big thing, of course, is just always worried about technology, screen time, and how it's affecting our kids. I think that's a we have we don't have enough information to know what how it's going to affect them. But like I saw stuff earlier on where you know they were just always. I mean they still do now. They still always always want screen time. Always of course, of uh, course. My, my phone or the YouTube or whatever. That's what they always want. 
But you know, we had um, we decided to implement uh, tech-free weekends. No, no tech, <laughs> no screen time. Yeah. And I can tell you, it was absolute and utter hell. Like it was, it was absolutely nightmares. <laughs> it was so no, and 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 then parents easily give up. But I, I but we stayed firm, and it was four weekends of just absolute hell. But on the fifth weekend, something magical happened. Uh, we woke up, and my son's playing blocks. My oh. daughter is playing uh, playing with her crafts. Uh, they put on the, they put on uh, they started singing singing dancing karaoke stuff and I was like okay this is oh my gosh it's working and I was like so excited uh, so you just have to be patient to get through that but yeah like being mindful of this because and the other thing too is my, my, my son's best friend has had a cell phone since grade two like that's crazy to me like there's no way I would do that uh, but uh, you know what that, that okay that 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 that's crazy okay fine but. You know, the end, but we're trying to be mindful of, you know, find that balance and making sure they love books and making sure they uh, love conversations, you know, no tech at the table for dinner time. Let's just talk to each other and, and things like that. And I think that's really, really important to, to build. You know, I'm a big power connection person, right? So, like, mm. how do we build connection relationships and giving them the tools to integrate successfully into life and be productive global citizens, whether they want, whether it's for, mm. for their career, for their personal lives, for their partners, whatever they want to be. I want to make sure that they're able to do that on their own. That's that's my main focus for them. It's really interesting because my, my wife and I, we love travel. Travel, if, if you ask both of us what's, you know, one of the biggest things that's ever impacted you, it was always travel because, yeah. you know, you, you go to school and you learn about all these different countries and things like that, but there's nothing like going there and actually experiencing them. And it's humbling, you know, and we always kind of go to, like, we don't go to another person's country to live like Canadians. We go to that country to live like them. That's their country. And it, we've always right. taken that mentality. And, you know, you, 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 you go and we always try to, you know, get out of tourist zones. We, we want to get into the trenches of, of all these countries. And you see how simple people live in some countries. And they're so much more happy. Yeah. You bring up the whole birthing process in Africa. You know, uh, we have some good doctors here where they're very much on like kind of the natural path slash health, our ones. And, you know, even my wife's doctor, he said, you know just do it man like get let's get this done you know like we don't we've really glamified and gamified a lot of things in in, in the western you know western continent so to speak and um I, I couldn't agree more with you uh shifting over you're a great speaker this is a fear Thanks. this is a fear of humans this is like a top <laughs> fear of human mankind um you know some people literally said they'd rather die then get up in front of right. an audience and speak. And um, I've spoke myself at a lot of conferences. Still to this day, I get nervous. I get so nervous. But what usually kind of quenches that is, you know, being prepared, going through my little routine, understanding well, my talk. And I tell people having nerves is normal. Having nerves means that you shows you care. It shows you it, care to do your best to de deliver the audience. If you didn't have nerves, then you'd probably come across as some arrogant, egotistical maniac. And so you don't want that. <laughs> what? makes a great speaker uh how should should the average person try to become you know somewhat of a decent public speaker how has public speaking impacted your career your life um what has that done for you personally and professionally to really kind of propel you forward and what is what are some of your kind of um i don't know uh, do you have any uh what, what's the word um What's the word I'm thinking of? I, I have a mind for it. Uh, it's kind of like um, little rituals. Do you have any speaking rituals, rituals that people would never think about that, you you know, maybe you do after a speech, 
during a speech, just anything that kind of calms you and kind of executes. Hmm. What makes a great okay. speaker? I love how you have these six part questions. Okay, so. Um, it's the way my head works. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what I would say is um, every single person has a story, a voice, uh, a legacy, and expertise. And so every single one of us has the opportunity to speak. And so, you know, uh, they always say that the two, I would say in, my, in some of my speeches, the, the two um, well known truths are death and taxes, they would say, right? But there's two more. You always have to deal with people and you always have to give presentations. Whether you're presenting to your friends to go see a movie, presenting to your parents, can I marry this person? And when you're presenting to your work or your friends or school, like we're always making presentations. So becoming a better speaker is going to help you in everything, in business, career, personal, social life, dating, you name it. Mm. So I think it's inherent upon us to uh, develop that. I also believe that speaking is a big part of thought leadership. Every single thought leader out there uh, works on their speaking. So to me, every single person has the opportunity to speak and they should work on that. And that's also why I do a speaker coaching program because I, I think that a lot of people want to be able to speak, whether it's full-time, part-time, or just for kicks, but it's good to get out there and do it. And I, I'm happy to help them get their TED Talks or whatever they, they want to do with it. So I think that's one thing. Um, the other question was around, you know, how is speaking helped me? I mean, for the most part, yes, I think every person has a voice and speaking has allowed me a chance to, you know, champion certain causes, certain ideas around uh, leadership and networking and personal branding and, and diversity of things that are important to me. Uh, it's given me a platform to build my business, grow my business. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that spoke, became a speaker first and then started doing the coaching and the books and all that other stuff. Uh, other people go the other way to start speaking after they've done all that stuff. So I spoke first. And then I built the rest of it after that. So for me, it's been great. Um, I, I love it. I, I love being on stage. I love impacting people. I love when people come up and they say this has impacted me. Uh, even the more emotional ones where, you know, this one, I actually just posted about this the other day. This woman came up to me and just started bawling because uh, my message for her was at a halfway house uh, because she had an abusive, uh, you know, uh, uh, father of her son and just like it was really powerful and then she just broke down and I hugged her for like three minutes <laughs> you know and wow and I just met her and it was just like a very powerful thing but that type of profound stuff it just makes my work and my job so rewarding uh, I just love it so much I, I love having the energy on stage and it's just it, it's really exciting for me and then in terms of rituals um I, I don't I don't know if I have very many rituals honestly like I, I think the only ritual I can think of and it's kind of it's probably kind of nerdy and lame is like once I have my presentation done, I actually print it out and then I on paper and then I go through it and I just make notes about things I style and things I want to say and jokes I want to insert and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I find that calms me, calms me down to get me ready uh, to, to do it. And the, and the other thing I typically do is I, I pace a lot. So right before I'm on uh, stage, I'll pace back and forth. Uh, in fact, what's interesting is that if you ever watched my TEDx talk, my first, no, sorry, I'm sorry, five of them, but my first, my first TEDx talk was uh, on the power five C's of connection. And in that one, it was my first TEDx talk. I was super nervous. Like, I've been more nervous than anything else. And normally for talks, people don't know this. I don't share it very often. I actually don't rehearse my speeches. Mm. Uh, I've been, I, you know, because of my improbability, because of my doing this for so long, once I have the structure laid on PowerPoint, I made my notes, I know exactly what I'm going to say and how I'm going to do it. I don't need to rehearse it. But for the TED talk, it was such a big deal. And I was so nervous. I rehearsed that thing 30 times. And every single time, I felt like I screwed it up. And so back, and I knew that the, the video and the branding it would be a good opportunity for my marketing to, to propel myself as a speaker. Uh, and so backstage, I was pacing back and forth, back and forth, back, I was so nervous. And then I saw this teddy bear. I was like, oh, whose teddy bear is it? And, and someone said, it's mine. Can I borrow it? I was like, sure. So I borrowed it. And I'm, I'm hugging this teddy bear back and forth, back and forth, holding a teddy bear because it's making me feel better. And then they called me on stage at TED, TED Talk, and I walked on stage with the teddy bear. 
And if you watch the beginning of the video, I come on stage with a teddy bear, I hug the teddy bear, put him down the table, and then I started talking. <laughs> and that was not planned, but it's on the video and I think it looks great because it definitely calmed me down. You know what? It's funny because that probably was amazing only because like props are everything, especially when it comes across natural. People, I, I've, I have heard of, you know, I've talked to some great speakers and they, a lot of them have said, I don't rehearse my talks. I, I definitely have the, you know, the meat and potatoes as to what I want to say, but I don't rehearse. And I always ask why not? And some of them do say, I just feel like I, I want to be as authentic and make it as relatable as possible to the audience. And I feel like if I rehearse it, it might come across to rehearse. Like every great talk out there, we never, ever walk away saying, Oh, you know, it felt rehearsed. No, we, we walk away like the lady coming up to you saying, man, I love you. You know, you impacted me. Now, everyone has a voice. What's really interesting about great speakers is some of the biggest, most terrible people in the world, dictators, were great speakers. Oratory yeah. was on point. Some of the most amazing... With great power comes great responsibility, right? Yes. <laughs> some of the most amazing, you know, thought leaders out there that speak like crazy... Um, led their audiences into a good place. What is the difference between going, leading your audience to a bad place and a good place? And I know for sure it's, well, what, who's the person that's giving the talk, but how is somebody who's got such a great oratory ability able to sway our brains left or right, good or bad? How do you think this happens? What's the psychology behind it? And have you ever thought about it this way? Well, Great question. Um, I kind of related to the Harry Potter story, which is, you know, Harry <laughs> Potter. No, Harry Potter and Voldemort were very similar. They both spoke Parseltongue and they both had these upbringings. Uh, they were both orphans. And, you know, one decided to do what's bad. Another person decided to do what's good. A lot of it comes down to our inner choice and what we, you know, what we feel. We all go through pain. We all go through damage. How we process that pain, how we process that damage will determine whether we go this way or we go that way. Because, yeah, the truth is, I could take my skills as an orator to do, I could probably, I could probably convince dozens of people to stop recycling, you know, and, and be very convincing, <laughs> right? Yeah. But no, because I'm very it's persuasive true. and that's fine. Yeah. I could probably, I could probably do it to bully people, which again, I'm totally against, but yeah, I'm very persuasive and I probably could do that. So, you know, part of it is, I think, um, something that we, number one, we choose. Uh, number two, I think it's, part of it is going to be, um, you know, understanding our values, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, knowing what our values are, what we stand for. Like the reason, the reason I like personal branding so much is that diving my personal brand, I understood what I stood for and what's important to me. Uh, but I also understood that the certain values that I like, the values I care about, like diversity, equality. Yeah, those those are definitely you know, if I pitch for them, they they can be good things. But I also I, I noticed in my in my process, I value status, which is why I kind of like my my job titles. And um, so and and I realized that people value money. There's nothing wrong with that. It's more of a question of how you express those values mm. and how you activate those values. Mm. And we can activate those values of love, kindness, forgiveness, money, status, you know, lifestyle in positive ways or negative ways. So for me, you know, I, I don't have a psychology degree. I, I do know that people, you know, project their pain and I do know that people don't process their pain as well as they can. So whenever I deal with trolls and things like that, I know they're going through something. And I leverage empathy as a tool to help me manage that a little bit better and not let it get to me. Uh, but these people also, you know, they go through a lot of pain. Every single person, uh, people are either going to act in a blissful way or in a painful way, right? Mm -hmm. And so, it's, same, it's just like good and evil, good and bad, left left or right. 
Um, and so it's part of it is about being mindful about your emotions and processing your emotions, having a purpose, having knowing your values. Uh, but ultimately, I think that all of us have the choice. We have a choice to take our pain, to take our problems, to take our issues and try to be a force for a positive change or to go down the other path uh, because it feeds you a little bit. It really does. Like the, the troll, if you know, it, it can feed you. Like if I, even when I rant about something, when I rant about something, the ranting feeds me in some way. Like when I rant about taxi cabs or tipping or, you know, credit cards, <laughs> and, ah, you know, it, it feeds me a little bit. But at the end of the day, like, you know, can I be grateful? Hey, you know, credit card allows me to do all this stuff. And the taxi was there when I used it. Like that add to the gratitude can really uh, help uh, your mind shift as well. You did have a, a recent little campaign that you started that everybody was tagging you on. Uh, is it 12? What was it called? 12 Days of Gratitude or 12, 12 Days of Gratitude? 12 Days of Gratitude. What What was the whole motivation behind that? Yeah, so that actually started a couple years ago. Uh, I started a couple years ago and um, the idea was, you know, like 12 Days of Christmas. So it basically happened on holidays. And so before, <laughs> before Christmas, you're like, think of something every day that you're grateful for. So I did that uh, on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram with just just images, and and uh, that was two years ago. And then uh, this year, uh, one of my friends, she loved it so much. She's like, can, I, can we do it again, Bobby? I'm like, let's do it again. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm so busy now because like uh, back then I was posting every day on LinkedIn, but now I don't. I only post on LinkedIn three times a week, uh, and now I do mostly videos. So I was like, uh. So I started it, and actually, it's funny you mention it because I I just did eleven day the eleventh day yesterday. And today, yeah. like I, I shared on LinkedIn and Instagram today. And uh, so I'm going to do the 12th one tomorrow. And But the idea is that, uh, it, you know, you can, you can be grateful for the obvious things like your family and your, your friends and things like that. But, you know, I came up with stuff that uh, was out of the norm. Like one was, my first one was being grateful for moving. What does that mean? Being able to move. I can move, I can stand up, I can walk, I can run, I can jump, I can do things that a lot of people cannot. And just being grateful for that uh, is just, that's a very small thing, but we take it for granted on a daily basis. You know, I can cook, I can pick up my kids, I hug them, like that's one. And then another one I did actually around the middle was, I said I was grateful for diabetes and binge eating. And diabetes has been a struggle with my health and binge eating has been a struggle, struggle for my health my whole life. but. By, by being grateful, I'm taking ownership of it, I'm empowering myself, and I'm recognizing what it did for me, which is being more mindful of my health, being more mindful of my food, being trying to be a better person from a health perspective. And so that gratitude allows me to diminish its power over me versus my pie and have more power over it. And so for me, I, I love that aspect. What gap does binge eating fill for you? What is the, what is the, and I know it's a deep question because it could be it rooted, is. it's deep rooted, but I think it's, I mean, my whole goal on the, on this podcast is very simple. Like curiosities are mandate is, is the whole concept. But for me, it's, you know, you talk to some great people and everybody wants to talk to them for the same thing, which is totally cool. You know, you got some good clout, you did some really cool things in life, but I love to know like the story behind that. I, I like to know when the camera and the lights are off, who the heck this individual really is and what sure. makes them cry and what makes them happy and what, what upsets them, what, you know, what also ignites them and how do they repurpose all that energy to do something really cool, which is the reason why most people want to talk to you anyway, is because you're doing something that's whatever cool in whatever industry and in whatever time, you know? Yeah. So what, what for you does binge eating fill quote unquote, and I'll say fill with quotations because I'm sure you're going to tell me, well, it fills for maybe one second and then there's other things. So anyway, 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've done a lot of analysis. I've been to psychotherapists and things like that. But uh, what we've come up with in our discussions are three main things. One, it's filling the filling the gap that I, well, filling the gap of love for my mom. So I eat mm. food as an expression of love. I loved her food. And I eat a lot. So uh, one, eating for me is an expression of love or a feeling of love that you know I want for my mother psychologically. Number two, uh, it's also um, control. Um, I don't like I, when I became diabetic. I didn't like the idea that I had to control my food and people were telling me to control my diet. And for me, I'm trying to exert control by binging because it's like. And on top of that, related to that, the third thing is rebellion. I'm a classic rebellion. I married, a, you know, married a white girl, and you know, we have beige kids, and it's beautiful. But um, I've always been, I've always been rebellious. So I'm rebelling to say, you know, I don't care what you say about my diabetes. I'm gonna eat whatever the hell I want. And so those three factors are are big parts of the binge eating. But I also track, uh, you know, the triggers and things like that. And one of the things I've I've come to a profound uh, another thing that happened actually too. The other thing is I think body image. Um, about about six years ago, I remember walk waking up one morning and uh, I I swung my bed, swung my legs around the bed, and I looked down. And I just like, <sighs> and I looked down, you know, you know, and and I literally hated my body. I just hated it, and I was like, man, and this just feels terrible. And I just absolutely hated the way I felt, and the way I looked, and so coming to terms with my body and trying to be to love it more and to be more conscious of my body image and find things I like about myself has been a journey I've been on to as well. And I think it's also related to the, the binge eating piece. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed is that going through psychotherapy is that binge eating disorder is what I have. And no matter what people say, well, Bob, why don't you just, you know, do this or try this diet or blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's the same, it's the same thing as telling someone with mental health issues to just get over it. And yeah. that's not, that's not, that's not how it works. And so what I've done now is, Instead of trying to eliminate binge eating, which is what I, what I used to do, now I've learned to accept it. I've accepted the fact that I binge eat, and so what I do instead is I focus on three things. Number one, I try to um, lower the severity of the binge from severe to moderate to you know quasi. I try to uh, lessen the frequency between my binges, and so instead of having them every other day, I may have them every three weeks or every three months or whatever it might be. And the third thing I try to do is I try to work on the recovery time to be quicker. Because either I'll recover that evening and have a salad, I'll recover in a couple of days, or I'll recover in two weeks. Mm. So two weeks of binging. So I try to recover faster. And so uh, I know it's going to happen. And so now I've worked on my mindset and then tools to help me recover faster. Interesting. That's smart, man. That's like safeguards almost. I like that. Yeah. Uh, circling back into what I'm grateful for, I'll tell you something funny. So... I, I am fearful of the dentist. Like since I was a little kid, I I actually love tattoos and stuff. So when people have tattoos, I'm like, oh, you know, did it hurt? Did it not hurt? I don't have any tattoos because I'm deathly afraid of needles. And I had 13 surgeries when I was a baby upon birth. And I technically was dead for a second and a half. So I, I came into this world with the deck stacked against me. But it's weird because I'm like, why was I so scared? Why am I so scared of needles to this day? Um, and I like I, I like even a pin like just threading clothes. I'm like I, it's, it's something that I'm just told like you if you bring out a pin, I might punch you. Like it okay. just it's just crazy. And so I'm like, why am I so scared of needles? And you know you kind of go back and it's like it's interesting the things that even when you're not your brain isn't even formed that you know kind of get into your lifestyle. That being said, I I never like to go to the dentist, so I would never. Uh, growing up, like I would refuse to go get my teeth clean, things like this. Uh, thank God I brushed my teeth and, you know, tried to, to, to kind of do the health route. But um, I literally just got my wisdom teeth taken out 
two and a half years ago. And my mm-hmm. God, it was, they were cracked and the worst case scenario of taking out a tooth happened. And the poor mm-hmm. dentist, like when you see a health professional that literally puts down their bandage and looks at you and was like, man, that was rough. You know, you're just like, <laughs> holy crap. Like they were as stressed out as I was. That being said, um, the hygienist said, Ryan, you need to floss every single day. And, and this is the truth. This is one of my facts. I didn't really start flossing consistently until about three years ago. Now, my teeth are really good, thank God, but they, I had cavities and all that. But I said, okay, you got to start flossing. I hate when you, you know, the pull, fo- the pull floss. I can't get back there with the thread. Me neither. So they, so they have those little sticks that have yeah, the little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, I am so thankful for those. Uh, it, it changed my whole like trajectory orally and it's funny because when people say what are you thankful for and you just said you're like it doesn't have to be anything major or big but it's like the detail i'm so thankful for those little sticks with a piece of thread i floss every day awesome. it's night and day and I, I i i just it's those little things that like so when you brought that up i'm like i got something i'm really thankful for there you go that's good that's good and it's funny because i'm also bad with the teeth i don't floss either and i never have and uh, i try but it's always difficult but i'm also lucky because i have good teeth i've never had a cavity my whole life so i'm actually very lucky i have good genes yeah my kids and my wife they have tons of it so yeah i'm mindful Uh, of that for sure good for you man um okay linkedin so my thing now that i'm on linkedin and kind of you know observing watching posting contributing you know building community things like this is um, some people post, it seems like every day, two times yeah. a day, sometimes what are, is, what is some of the things on LinkedIn you feel like you've kind of got it down to a science? Like what is a game? Like, what is like, I don't know if you have a game plan for LinkedIn, do you post once a week? Do you post a couple times a day? Is there no right or wrong answer? How do you get traction on LinkedIn? And what are some hacks that you could tell the audience that if you start doing this, you might actually see some of that momentum start to actually, you know, start to get some steam and actually push forward. Well, I think the one biggest tip I can tell you is that we need to evolve. Uh, so everything I've done in the last two years with my LinkedIn engagement has evolved tremendously. First, I was doing text-based posts. Then I was doing stories. Then I went to videos. Then I mixed it up with different things. Then I started a company page recently. Um, so I'm learning as I go along too. But that said, in terms of my system, I've, I've also scaled back my time because um, it, it's, it's very time consuming. I used, to, I used to do posts every day and, oh. and it ended up being like an hour and a half of time. Cause you also have to engage in other people's posts. You have to yeah. comment on other people's yeah. posts. You have to engage in your own things. You have to re- respond to comments. It's just a lot. And so uh, I'm now, I'm now doing three times a week. Um, because you know, I, and, and even then I'm sometimes da- it's daunting. Like, oh, okay. I guess I gotta get, put in my two hours, you know, cause it's a <laughs> lot of work. Um, but it's important to have consistency. So that's why I've, I've kind of gone down to like the three times per week thing in terms of the post, you know, one of the things that I keep in mind is, uh, always make sure it's clear what the, so what is, uh, when you're, when you're on the post. So if I do a video, I make sure there's clear text that explains exactly what I'm talking about. That's one thing. The second thing, a big, uh, one hack would be about, you know, leveraging, um, hashtags because certain hashtags trend and you'll know which, which, which ones they are. You can also own your own hashtag, but there's certain hashtags that are seen more by LinkedIn people. So for example, the ones I use are like motivation or careers or entrepreneurship, and they often get seen. Uh, and you'll actually know on your, on your post, you'll see it at the top. Oh, it looks like that LinkedIn has, has notified its algorithm that your, your post has been classified as personal branding or classified as motivation. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a good hack to know. Mm. Um, I think that uh, with videos, particularly subtitles are really helpful for the audience, although I don't always do that. But, 
it's always it's always troubling because I um I always I'm I'm known for the one minute video. I I I, I throw in the value nugget in one minute or less always. In fact, uh, all my videos are actually exactly one minute. So what I do is I time them so they're exactly one minute. And again, that consistency makes you well known. Um, it's what other people do. Like I, she mentioned Dr. Natalia, you know, she's really big on how, and other people do this too, um, Quentin Allen's thing, where you have, they have a specific look. You know, her glasses and his hat are part yes. of the signature thing that they have. And I don't have that yet, I just have big brown guy. But maybe, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll turn to something else. I mean, I have blue glasses now, so I don't know. But, uh, but, I, but I know people have used that as a tactic for them, and yeah. I think that's also very interesting. Um, I make sure the first uh, few lines of my text posts are extremely catchy and gets their attention. Uh, and then there's always a call to action. So there's little things you can do to try to make sure your messages are, are getting out there. And the other thing I do actually uh, that maybe a lot of people don't do is um, uh, I leverage my social media network. So as soon as I post a LinkedIn thing, I will share on Instagram that I just posted this. I will share on Twitter that I just posted. I'll share on Facebook I just posted this to drive the traffic back to, to what's going on there. And then I'll typically send a message to about 10 people saying, hey, guys, I just posted something. Do you mind checking it out? And I, I go to some of my friends that I know are willing to comment and, and like stuff and engage. Mm-hmm. And I'll do that as well. So I call it hustling the post, but I'll, I'll do that in the first hour. Absolutely. Do yeah. you feel that with LinkedIn, it's interesting. Brand wise, everybody knows me for my socks. Like I'm, I'm a sock person. It's interesting, though, when we look at branding and personal brand. Dress code is something that I think is really interesting. The world, to me, has gotten a lot more casual. Um, you know, you see this in even corporate environments. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm doing, I'm, I'm wearing just a hoodie too, and um, I come from a, I mean, like people know me for my dress code. Where, dude, I will do like the suit and the tie religiously. But in the last couple of years, I just, I don't, not really feeling it, and. My bread and butter is automotive industry and marketing and all those things. But how important is dress code? What is your opinions on that? We know that there's things out there like the uniform mentality where, you know, Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, even Barack Obama only wore like two shades of a suit every day. And a lot of them, the, the, the common answer they gave for this was that they didn't want to have to put any more energy into figuring out what they wanted to wear on a daily basis because they had to make so many other decisions. So they wanted to make sure that, you know, basically attention arbitrage, right? What yeah. is your opinion on that? Um, I've seen some of your stuff. Sometimes you get up in a suit and I know when you're doing your events and stuff like that. And how do you, you know, you go from hoodie on a podcast, hanging out, doing your stuff, and then you, you, you game it up. Is it something you are very dialed into? Or is it something that you're like, no, no, I feel like when I do business, I want to dress up nice. Like, what's your whole thoughts on dress code? Do you think that the perception still will impact the interaction necessarily? Like, what's the thoughts? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, your dress and how you wear yourself is part of your brand and how you do it. And so if you want to invest the time and energy in that, you totally can. I invest my time and energy elsewhere. I invest my time and energy in the engagement, in the content itself, and and trying to be thoughtful. And so that takes that takes time as well. Mm-hmm. Someone else will spend time putting their makeup together, and I'm going to spend my time putting together what's the message and crafting it and honing in a way that's going to be really relevant to my audience. Um, I think my general, uh, you know, and there have been people over the years who've, who've suggested, hey, why don't you like dress more often and dress better when you're doing stuff? And I'm like, look, when I'm on stage, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. But I can't, I, I don't have the time to do it every day for just my blog posts and things like that. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my power of connection thing is, is Bobby chatting with you on a sofa about the deepest conversation of your life. And that does not require me to be in a suit. 
Uh, in fact, if anything, the, the hoodie, the sweatshirt, the um, T-shirt, the sandals and shorts, these are things that are going to make people more comfortable to share those things with me and be part of that journey with me. Mm-hmm. But I understand the people who do it. I mean, there's so many people out there who you know dress to the nine. Dr. Natalia is a good example. They, they dress the nines and they look amazing. That's great. I mean, if it's part of your brand, part of your value and part of your the thing that you want to be known for uh, as part of the whole package, go for it. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, when, when I'm in a suit, I'll definitely make videos because, you know, I know some people like that. I like to change it up. I'm also big on diversity and variety and things like that. Of course. But I, I definitely am not a fashionista at all. Uh, I definitely admire people who are. Uh, and I don't, to me, it's authenticity. I don't want to spend time being something that I'm not. And I'm certainly not the type of guy to wear the multicolored socks and have the little poofy thing in their, in their suit thing. And I, that's not me. Like I, <laughs> uh, you know, I will do it for an event, but not as a regular basis. My business card is a sock, Bobby. It's literally a sock. <laughs> it's actually a men's sock and it's dirty on the tip. So I'm go. telling nice. you, I'm really, I'm crazy about this. Uh, my last question, which is a 10 part question mixed into one <laughs> as, as you're starting to under, as you're starting to understand my style, um, oh my how do you make money on LinkedIn? We spend a lot of time, you know, engaging and liking and commenting. And sometimes when we connect with somebody, they automatically shoot us a sales pitch, which for me is a complete turnoff because we haven't built any reputation or anything. Almost equivalent to a one night stand where, you know, when you met your wife, if you guys went on the first date, you would not be like, okay, so let's get married. Like that would be creepy. And she would say, you're weird. You have to like build to that and kind of get to that point. How do you make money specifically with LinkedIn? What are some, you know, hacks? Even myself, I think I have a lot to improve on when somebody sends me a connection request. You know, I will usually reach out and say, thanks so much for connecting. You know, I appreciate you. I don't do any call to action. I don't mention my podcast. I don't mention my company. Um, my thought process on that rate is that I don't want my first message to be too aggressive. You know, I don't want to take yeah. them down a weird path. Um, but, you know, I know you have been on this since day one, and I'm sure you can shed some light into some things that you can maybe do early that might lead you to the long game of, hey, maybe we can secure some business. Maybe they will come back on my profile and say, hey, like, you know, hey, what do you do? Like, what are some incremental things you feel like you can do off the hop? Okay, well, let me first start off by being transparent to say that uh, I don't think that I'm there yet in terms of making money su- successfully, consistently off of LinkedIn. I still okay. I do it, but yep. not at a point where I feel like okay, I'm the I'm the master at this. Sure. Um, you know, if you if you want mastery, it's mastering how to command a stage and rock an audience. But what I will say is that there's two things that I'm doing that are working when it comes to LinkedIn. Number one building a thought leadership brand around who you are and your expertise. So what that means is creating content, engaging with people and showcasing your expertise, demonstrating who you are, what you know, and things like that. So that includes the content I'm doing and having a strong profile and having, when people go, they, they see my TED Talks, they see what I'm all, what I'm all about. So for me, building a, a thought leadership personal brand around yourself and your expertise, I think is a huge thing. And that's broken down into, you know, one is networking, the other one's content, and the third one is working on your communication and speaking skills. So that's one thing that I do. That's why I create the content, because it starts conversations. And as soon as I get a comment from somebody that says, you know what, oh, I wish I could speak like you, or I wish I could uh, network like you right away, that's an opening for me to start a conversation with them. Mm. Uh, and, or, or they'll come to me for my speaker mastermind program, and because they love what I'm talking about. Especially when I do the, especially when I share the, the videos of me on stage or like at, at an event where I'm speaking, they get really that gets people excited. Uh, those things start conversations. That's the first thing. The second thing would be actually the the conversation with people who connect with me 
uh, just randomly and you look at their profile and see what they're up to and you see that oh, okay this person's doing a couple of videos and I'll I'll, re- I'll reach out inbound marketing and say hey let's have a call and uh, next thing you know within a couple of calls or meetings you start to find out you know you invest in their stories and their gaps and their challenges of their, their life and they start to say things that maybe you can help with and so when you can when you start to give keep giving value and value eventually they'll say you know what, i want to work with you and so mm. that's how i've been able to get people uh, as well in terms of transacting to do that kind of stuff because the thought leadership brand people will reach out to you and people will refer you and then for the inbound stuff you know you identify those opportunities and the next mm. thing you know they want to hire you or be part of your program so those are probably the two main things that I do in terms of LinkedIn to generate business. I just find it interesting that it's funny. If you put out a piece of content, that's basically kind of runs parallel to an ad that you might put out. If you actually put out the ad, people are like, go away, leave me alone. But if you put out a piece of content that actually serves a purpose, people actually are like, I love it. And they come to you. And that that's the genius of the inbound marketing. Um, You are, are, you've made a great name for yourself speaking and TEDx and TED Talks and all these things I think is great. So I just want to give you kind of the, uh, the last you know, minute just to talk about the mastery behind speaking and anything you really just want to say. Well, I think, uh, again, like I said before, everyone has a voice and a story that they can, and expertise they can share. And so I think the world is ready to hear every single one of you. Don't ever think that you don't have that. And I think every single person also, you know, might feel lost or stuck or unfulfilled in their life, but they don't have to do that. They can find a path of greatness that's aligned with them. And that's why I'm a big believer in personal brands. That's why I'm a big believer in speaking. That's why I'm a big believer in fighting for the life that you want. You just have to make sure that you have to have the courage to ask for help. You have to be able to want more alignment. You want to want more focus and want more clarity and want more impact. And so if I can help in any way, I will. And uh, I, and I applaud you for having the courage to do so. And I hope everyone you know, is willing to create that life that they want for themselves. Now, last thing is, why, why did you want to come on the, the podcast? How did you come across my stuff? I know we've been connected, but, you know, we don't interact a whole lot. Um, yeah. But we're, we're on Instagram. Like, why? Just why? I, I, it's funny because well, when I started doing the podcast, I was apprehensive to ask guests this question. And I started asking guests the question because... I feel it serves a two part. I feel like number one, um, they can say something that could probably help me improve. Uh, and I, I'm always open for feedback. And number two, um, I think it makes it about the guest. And I think that to have any successful show, podcast, YouTube channel, when you're bringing people on, you need to make them the focus. Sure. I, I mean, I haven't done, uh, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts. I've done probably over a hundred. And what I can tell you is that, um, um, some are good and some are bad. And so I get asked all the time to podcast and I mostly will say yes if it fits in my time schedule. But there's certain ones that I watch. I'm like, you know what? Uh, I wouldn't mind being on that one. So I saw you. I saw some of your podcasts. I saw your energy. I saw how you did it. And I was like, well, listen, I'd love to be part of that one. So uh, that's the reason why I did that. I, for me, it was really seeing how you did and how you interacted and engaged. And because of that, I reached out to you to say, hey, I'd love to be in your podcast. I appreciate that. It's interesting because I just had. Uh, have you heard of Scott Stratton? Of course, I know Scott. So, so he he unmarketing guy. Yeah, in the podcast, it's amazing. He he literally said how a lot of hosts were terrible. He's like, <laughs> I have been on podcasts. He he actually doesn't do them really much anymore. But I did have a pre existing relationship with him, and he said, you know, no problem. Like I'll support you. And he just was so abrupt to say a lot of podcast hosts suck, Ryan. They actually will yeah. sit there and just be like, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, 
yo, man, like I, I'm the guest. And it's it's really interesting to hear that. I I personally have not been on a lot of podcasts, so I don't have a lot of um, hosts to go up against. But I've listened to some and they're, the hosts that are great. I mean, man, that I can see why their shows are doing very well. But it's interesting from a guest perspective because you're sitting there saying, oh, my God, I'm enjoying this or I'm not enjoying this. Uh, but here's a rule of thumb, Bob. Well, part uh, of it's B. fun, though. Like, I felt like I would have fun. Ah. Too, right? Ah. Like, you, you, you dove into some deep topics, which is great. But I also felt I'm going to have fun doing this. So let, let that is a big Huge. And, and, and the thing with technology is, is if I didn't have to call this a podcast, I wouldn't even call it a podcast. Uh, it's just a conversation. And this is why I've had literally guests. I have had some guests that I've reached out to that declined because I wouldn't send them pre uh, pre questions, uh, pre interview right. questions, and right. I just can't. I just to me, it's not. It's not me. It's not. It wouldn't be transparent. And I like the listeners. All of our listeners, the feedback we always get is, "Damn, like it's you guys just feel like you're having a conversation." It's you know, and I, and I like to give that visual of almost a fireside chat. You know, it's two people, a couple chairs. You got an audience, mm-hmm. and it's just a very one to one interaction. So I do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. And one, one thing I will say, one, one bit of advice, though, for that question thing is like, you know, I'm an extrovert. So I, th- I have a feeling that most people you're interviewing are either middle or extreme extroverts. So they're either in the middle of the road. Or the, and so the people who are introverts, having questions are, is good for them. So knowing if they struggle with that kind of stuff, then like I, I've interviewed some people where they're like, I, I need questions. Like, oh, OK. And they're just very shy and awkward. So if you really want them, then that that's probably something you'll have to do. But it's totally fine to keep it casual and keep it real. And I, I love what you've done. And I like how you actually went into deep topics and you did a good job too of also like, you know, listening and then ha- having a follow up to something specific I said. Uh, yeah, I think that you did a great job. See, and I'm not going to edit any of this part out. So you're actually going to hear this dialogue <laughs> at the end. But to go back to the person who's introverted and I get, see, this is a, we could talk forever, but this is a great question. Yeah. I'm sure you've got this. People who are, intro- who are introverted and I knew they were introverted reached out and said, Ryan, I'd love to be on your show. Don't tell me you want to be on the show and then not tell me what you want to be on the show for. You need to do the legwork to say, here's a topic. Here's maybe what I'd like to talk about. I have no problem if you're introverted, middle or extrovert. I can get along with everybody. I can get a spark from anybody. And I pride myself on that. That being said, you can't come with a degree of laziness to say, I just want to be on your show because I may be seen it. You got to come and say, well, here's why I'd like to kind of be on the show. I feel and I'm very like I'm very pro this is. I will, I have no problem falling on my face publicly. I will fail publicly. I will make a fool of myself publicly because I feel that there's so much learning in the failure aspect, right? And I documented this. If you actually ever have time, go listen to my episode one and you will be like, this guy, this is terrible. You'll see the personality, but you're going to be like, oh my God, like terrible, And then you see those episodes climb and I feel that the whole show in general can kind of people who have been following there's there's that learning curve there for it. Right. So people like you, it's kind of like you got on the stage for your first talk. I'm sure you've threw some bricks out there in your day and I'm sure that not every talk has went exactly the way you wanted it. So I just I love your candidness. I I love the fact that in your content, in your life, you're very transparent and you talk about deep issues. You talk about funny stuff. And you're just a big brown guy who calls his kids beige like Russell Peters. And I dig that about you, man. Uh, so to end this show, uh, Bobby's going to tell us how you can find him, uh, where the heck he is, and a plug and a plug and a plug. So, Bobby, how can everybody find you and reach out? 
Sure. So my website's rayallen.com, R-A-E-A-L-L-A-N.com. That's my speaker uh, site. My DYPB Discovery Personal Brand site about personal branding is dypb.ca. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, the main handle I use is Rayhan Bobby. That's my first two names, uh, R-A-E-H-A-N-B-O-B-B-Y. And uh, I run, uh, I also run a coaching program called the Speaker Mastermind Group to help intermediate to advanced speakers become better speakers uh, and build a strong platform for their speaker profile and get more gigs and get paid more and travel around the world and maybe even get a TEDx talk. And so if you want help with that, I can certainly help people with that. And yeah, that, that's about it about me. Perfect, man. Last thing I need you to say is just say the Ryan Holt Show podcast. The Ryan Holt Show podcast. 